The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today we're very honored to have the founder of Ascot Consulting, Amy Gravino, who is, they say, the Dr. Ruth of the autism community. Amy, welcome to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, Hackey. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I am the Dr. Ruth of the autism world. I'm very happy to say because I'm short and I like to talk about sex a lot. So I think that <laughs> moniker is fitting. Well, I really enjoyed reading all about you and uh, how you got into this and everything else. And I'm, I'm so glad that uh, as a champion uh, self-advocate, you can set us straight on a bunch of things that I'm sure our differentbrains.org audience really wants to know about. Um, let's start with you introducing yourself properly, how you'd like to be introduced. Well, my name is Amy Gravino. I am the founder and president of Ascot Consulting, um, which is an organization based in New Jersey, out of which I am a professional international public speaker and autism consultant. Uh, I do mentoring services as well for people on the autism spectrum who are not yet ready to go to college or who have been looking at college. And I'm also a certified college coach for students on the spectrum. Uh, I currently serve on the board of directors of Specialist Journal USA, Yes She Can, Inc., which is based in White Plains, New York, and the Golden Door International Film Festival of Jersey City. Uh, I've given a TED Talk on autism and sexuality, and I've spoken twice at the United Nations for World Autism Awareness Day, once in 2011 and also last year. I don't think you're accomplished enough, Amy. I'm <laughs> sorry. Okay. You were diagnosed in the early, early teens or around age 11. Tell us how that came about. So I was diagnosed uh, when I was 11 years old. And it was 1994, so Asperger's syndrome had just been added to the DSM that year. Uh, so there was not any kind of national consciousness or awareness of autism at that time like there is now. People knew very, very little. And certainly to be a girl and, and be diagnosed at that point was remarkable. Um, that I had, I got to meet with a psychologist who was astute enough to recognize my symptoms and, and recognize what was happening because we had no answers. My family had kind of bounced from specialist to specialist and no one really knew what was going on. They even had my hearing tested at one point because they thought I was deaf because I wasn't listening to them when they would tell me to do something. Um, and no, my hearing is actually great, obviously, but it was it was, it was was autism. And so um, I we just got the right referral. We ended up in front of the right person and I was diagnosed at 11 years old. How did you evolve going from that point forward? Well, when you're 11, you know, the word autism doesn't really mean anything, especially 11 years old in the 1990s when autism is not known, when there is not that conversation, like I said. So I didn't have any kind of sense of what that meant. All I had a sense of was that I was different. And as far as I knew, different was bad. Um, the way my classmates responded to me, the way they treated me, it was clear that who I was was not acceptable. And so I retreated kind of inward. I... You know, a lot of times you hear about people on the spectrum having meltdowns, and I did have certainly a lot of meltdowns, but I think for boys, they tend to express things more externally. And as a girl, I kind of turned in on myself. I started beating up on myself more than anything. And so I was very, very shy. Um, and again, people, the other reason why I think girls don't get diagnosed is people think, oh, she's just quiet. She's fine. You know, 
but just because I was quiet didn't mean I was fine. It was like, it was like Woodstock in here. It was so noisy. You know, there was a lot going on that people didn't understand. Um, so I just basically at that point, it was just that I was different and different was, was bad. And so as the years went on, my relationship to the diagnosis started to change and evolve. Um, I, I hated it. Uh, eventually when, when I hit my, my full teenage years, I wanted to distance myself from it. I said, this isn't me. You know, there's two Amy's there's autism, Amy, and there's Amy, Amy. And if autism, Amy could go away, everything would be great. And all my problems would be solved and I'd have friends. And so I, all I ever saw was, was as a liability. I never saw it as anything positive because it was never framed to me as something that could be positive. Um, there was an absence of role models even for, for someone like me. I mean, I remember the first time I saw a TV show that had characters I could relate to was Third Rock from the Sun. And it was the aliens. They, I related to, you know, the way they reacted to things, the way they behaved, that was like me. But what does that say if, you know, the only characters you're seeing like you are aliens? So not the greatest message maybe in, the, in that regard, but I had no other, you know, even though Temple Grandin had started to become more prominent on the scene, she was much older than I was. I was just a kid. And so that wasn't somebody that obviously I could really connect to at that point, at 11, 12, 13 years old. So um, it, the whole process, you know, was very gradual of how I got to where I am now. I People often say, like, what was the moment that everything changed? And the, 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 there is no magic moment. There is no switch turning all of a sudden and a magic wand waving and your life's perfect. That's not how it works. Um, you know, I, I, for so long, I wanted self-esteem to be something that somebody would give me. I looked for that validation from outside sources. I looked for it from guys because I desperately wanted a boyfriend. I looked for it from friends. But the place it finally had to come from for it to mean something was for me. And that the, the turning point of when that started was when I was actually filmed for a documentary called Normal People Scare Me. It came out in 2005, and it was actually directed by a young man with autism and his mother. They co-directed it. There were over 70 people on the spectrum in this film. And of all of the people who were asked about as they took the film all over the world to different screenings and events, other than the young man who directed it, the person people asked about most was me. And I was astonished. I said, what? Me? You know? And it was incredible because it was the first time anybody had wanted to put me on a platform like that. I wanted to raise my voice for people to hear. And I suddenly started to feel that maybe my voice can help people. Because even though I'd started speaking at conferences when I was 14 years old, it, it never really occurred to me that my voice could be magnified and could be something that could you know, extend out and help people. So that was kind of that, that turning point when I realized that that was a possibility. And I started then doing public speaking professionally the following year, about 2006. So I've been doing it now for 13 years. Um, but, and then each, you know, each step along the way has been what has helped get me to where I am. I started graduate school not long after that because I, and so I graduated college 2005. I moved to Seattle, Washington after I graduated, again, for the worst reason, which is a guy. Um, and I fell in love. I got my heart broken, lost my virginity, all that good stuff. And uh, I wound up moving back here in 2007 to go to graduate school. And I started ASCOT in 2010 um, as an outgrowth of the work that I was starting to do and wanting to be able to cover myself professionally and all that. And the sexuality piece emerged kind of surprisingly because... ASCOT was started for me to do college coaching, but I began doing the sexuality presentations in 2012 with Dr. Peter Gerhardt, who's a wonderful friend and colleague of mine. And that has just taken off. It's, it's gotten bigger and bigger every year. 
Um, there's, there's a lot of people doing college stuff, but there's not a lot of people doing sex. And the need is just growing. All of a sudden, parents are realizing, oh, crap, my kid's not going to be a kid forever. They're going to, like, grow up and stuff. You know, <laughs> And so, so every time I do the presentation, there's more and more people there. So that's just taken over everything, and that's become my passion. It's become what I've just really been so interested in. So. Well, we're lucky that we have you out there because when it comes to intimacy and sex, it's, uh, you know, it's like radioactive. Everybody treats it like it doesn't exist. The other thing which I very much enjoyed reading about your opinions, and I give you a big bravo for this, is something I've been saying, which is as a society, we have inadvertently discriminated against adults because it's all about the children. Yes. Well, and as you say, the children grow into adults, mm -hmm. and we have to be prepared. Now, I want to take it from a couple of different perspectives because of your unique perspective. I want to break it down into what advice would you have for parents? Like, tell us what advice you would have for parents of a young female autistic spectrum individual. Well, I, I get questions asked to me a lot by parents of those girls. And I, when I see these girls, because I see them at the conferences or I see them in other environments, I see myself in them a lot. And I just want to protect them and, you know, keep the world from hurting them because I know what's out there and what's waiting for them. But I also know that if you put somebody in a bubble to ensure that nothing will ever happen to them, nothing will ever happen to them. And that's not how you survive in this world. You do not survive by having no skills and having no knowledge of what the world is really like. So I would tell people, like, my parents did the most important thing that they could do, which was they let me go off and get my heart broken. Obviously, they didn't want to see that happen to me. Obviously, it must have been, you know, the day after I lost my virginity, I called my mother and told her. Like, I'm sure that's not a phone call she thought she was ever going to get, you know, um, from 3,000 miles away. But that, the, you know, that's how close that we had become that I was able to confide in her and, and, and tell her that. And so when I got my heart broken and all those terrible things happened, obviously it was devastating. No parent wants to see their child in pain, but you can't learn from mistakes if you don't make them. Right. So I say to parents, you, you know, people will want to be like, Oh, I don't want to tell my child, my child about sex because they'll want to go out and have sex. Number one. And number two, it'll take away their, their innocence. And I say, well, first of all, no, Autistic people are no more likely than anybody else to fall headfirst into an orgy. It doesn't work that way. Um, but it, you know, if you don't give somebody information, all that's going to do is leave them very vulnerable, very vulnerable to being assaulted, to being abused and taken advantage of because they're not going to know how to protect themselves. So giving someone that information, especially young women, is so, so crucial. Like that's how you, you, that's how you protect somebody is by empowering them. You empower them with that knowledge and that information. You tell them what sex is. You tell them what abuse is. What does it look like? Who can do it to you? There are so many different kinds of abuse and abuse is often very subtle. You know, there, th that's something that I didn't understand for a long time because when we think about it, we, we think about, you know, somebody hitting someone or more physical outward display, but abuse can be verbal. It can be emotional. So like letting people know what that looks like and who do you tell if it's happening to you? How do you get help? Um, we have to tell our young women this. And we have to also, I think very crucially, let young women know that they can have standards. This was another thing that I, I did not understand. I thought any guy who pays attention to me, 
I had to go right after him because maybe nobody would ever want me again. Maybe nobody would ever pay attention to me again. Uh, so I had no, you know, none of that sense of like, I'm allowed to be picky. It's okay not to go after the first person who looks at you. Um, and it, it took a long time to get to that point, but to just to let, let your girls know, you know, and just because also someone pays attention to you, it doesn't mean that they actually care about you. They may just want something from you. I could, I never could differentiate between that for the longest time. I didn't understand, you know, that maybe somebody's paying attention to me because they're trying to get something from me and not just because they really like me. And when you, when you're not differentiating between that, you know, when you're so desperate for like that attention and that validation, you, you don't realize that this is not the kind you really want. So letting young women know about that and not to rely on their self-esteem from others as well, I think is so crucially important. So there's a lot of things I would tell parents. Well, that's great. So now that was excellent. Now what I want to do is shift perspectives. You just gave great advice to parents. Now let's shift it to now let's talk to those young women in our audience directly who are at maybe the age you were when you got diagnosed, maybe a few years or older. Now talk to them. Right. Well, I, I would tell them, <laughs> you know, a lot of what I just said very similarly that you are worth so much more than what anybody is can ever say. Like nobody can tell you what you're worth. Only you can determine that. Absolutely. That's not up to anybody except you. And if somebody is trying to tell you that you need to do this, or you need to do that for them to like you, then they don't, then they're, <laughs> they don't really like you. They want a version of you that isn't really who you are. And you should not have to alter who you are so fundamentally just to make someone else happy. Do not ever do that. Um, it's hard to figure out who's worth your time because when you have so much emotional feeling for somebody, you feel like you want them, you know, you feel that they're worth your time. So you feel that they should feel the same way. And it's hard to differentiate sometimes your feelings from their feelings, but don't conflate the two. You may feel very strongly for someone. You may even fall in love with someone, but don't also assume that they're in love with you. And I know that's hard, but I've been there. I've gone through this and you shouldn't ever waste your time or make someone a priority who is only making you a second choice. That's, that's not what you deserve. You deserve better. Let's shift gears a little bit then. Let's talk about something very easy. He said sarcastically. I don't mind talking about the hard things. The hard things are the most important to talk about sometimes. No, but oh, I was just being facetious because uh. there's nothing easy. <laughs> nothing <laughs> easy for any of us, whether we're autistic or not. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have fun and laugh about it and tackle these problems head on. Of course. Tell us from your perspective and what you've been able to learn on your, your speaking tours and all of your scholarship and learning and everything. Give us from your um, very knowledgeable perspective where gender and sexuality meet, if I could. Uh, well, there, you know, sexuality is a very large spectrum and there's just as much diversity among sexual orientation and gender identity in the autism community as there is in the neurotypical community. Um, there actually tends to be a higher preponderance of people on the spectrum who identify as LGBT than in the neurotypical community. But that may just be due to more honest reporting 
from autistic individuals who just tend to not feel, you know, they tend to not attach that stigma or shame to other sexual orientations outside of heterosexual or other gender identities outside of cisgender. So there's just more honesty in, in, in the self-reporting that people give. Um, and they are different things. They can be, you know, confusing things um, when, when we talk about the difference between gender identity, sexual orientation, um, how someone presents gender presentation. So th those things can all be confusing, but they're all a part of how we establish our identity and how we, you know, look at ourselves as sexual beings. Um, and a lot of times, parents especially, I think, become uncomfortable when the conversation around sexuality goes into those realms. Like if someone identifies as LGBT or outside the gender binary, you know, um, people don't know, don't know what to say or what to do. And I, I always say to people, like, imagine, think how hard it is just to be someone who's neurodivergent, who's on the spectrum, trying to be who they are in a world that is not built for us. And imagine you're LGBT on top of that. And you're, so it's a double stigma that a lot of folks are facing in that regard, um, which, is, which is very challenging. But they need just as much support and they need a safe place to be able to be who they are. Um, we all need that, obviously, but it's that much harder if you're somebody who identifies as LGBT in addition to being on the spectrum. Gotcha, okay. Um, what is the single biggest misconception about autistic females that the general public and the overall autistic community might have? Well, there, there are a lot of misconceptions. I think one, unfortunately, is uh, we actually exist. You know, there's a lot of people who still think that if you're a girl, you can't be autistic, and that's not true, obviously. But um, there's, there's such an, you know, um, a lot of times girls and women have a hard time finding support in, 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 in autistic spaces because they're so male dominated. So you'll go to a support group and there'll be like four times as many guys there as girls. And, and for me, you know, I remember going to these groups and I would either get hit on or I'd get treated like I was an alien. And I wasn't there for either of those things. And it was not comfortable to, to be a, a woman there and be kind of treated that way. And a lot of time, you know, what ends up happening is for, for guys on the spectrum, many, most of their caregivers are women, right? They, they have their mom or the, the aide at school, the teacher, paraprofessional, whoever, it's all women. So they start feeling like, oh, woman, female is someone who will take care of me. And they go and they meet an autistic girl and like, oh, you could be my girlfriend. It's like, oh, back off. You know what I mean? That's not, I'm here, I'm a human being. Like, I'm not just here to be your girlfriend, you know? And, and so, and I think parents maybe unwittingly perpetuate that in some ways. I've heard stories from other women I know who, you know, the, the, the parents of, an autistic boy will try to get her to date their son. And it's like, no, you know, like you don't get to do that to someone. Like we're autonomous human beings. We're, we're not just potential girlfriends in, in waiting for autistic men. And our purpose, you know, again, a lot of times I think women on the spectrum end up in the caretaker roles. We end up, we kind of end up taking care of other people before ourselves. So our own needs end up getting neglected. And then women, a lot of women mask a lot of their symptoms as well to try to get by. Uh, because it's not acceptable to be an aut autistic and a woman a lot of the time. So then people will say, well, you, you know, you can't really be, you know what I mean? You're so like quote, high functioning or you're, you're friendly and you smile and you have friends. And so, and, but all of that is because of how women are socialized in our society. We undergo a completely different set of socialization guidelines than boys and men do. So we are automatically, you know, 
more socially inclined as a result of that, but it doesn't make us less autistic. And I wish people would understand that. Well, Amy Gravino, please tell us what writing you are doing. What kind of creative writing are you doing? Well, uh, right now I'm writing my first book. Um, it's called The Naughty Audie. And it's a memoir of my experiences with dating as a woman on the autism spectrum. Uh, but I've done a lot of other writing. I've written for different publications. I'm in the, uh, the exceptional, uh, it's a special education textbook edited by Bill Heward. I, I think it's Exceptional Children. The title escapes me at the moment, but um, I've, I've had my writing published in a number of outlets. Uh, I just did the introductions for the Organization for Autism Research, their sexuality guide for young adults on the spectrum. Dr. Gerhardt and I, we, we did the introductions for that. Um, and I, yeah, I, <laughs> I've, I just, I love writing about this stuff. You know, it, it's, there's so much that's been happening. Uh, I'm going to be doing another webinar with Dr. Gerhardt about sexuality for the New Jersey Autism Center for Excellence in the fall. And we just did one for OR last fall. Um, so, but I hope to keep writing more about the subject and have my book out as soon as possible. Well, that's great. We want to, all of our different brains audience will want to know about it for sure. Tell us more about Ascot Consulting. Sure. Well, I, I started in 2010. As I say, I got a certification as a college coach for students on the spectrum from Bank Street College in the city uh, with Dr. Linda Geller. And um, it's just evolved as time has gone on because I've, you know, I had people contact me. Like I said, they're child is not in college or is not sure if they're going to go to college or they're looking for someone to talk to who was on the spectrum. And I thought, you know, when I was younger, it would have helped me enormously to have an older person on the spectrum to talk to, just to see that there is a future, to see what, what possibly can happen. And so that's why I decided to add the mentoring component to, to ASCOT um, to, so that people who are on the spectrum could talk to me and, and I could give some advice. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, you know, licensed mental health counselor or anything, but I am someone who has a lived experience of being on the spectrum. And um, so I thought that that would be you know, something that could be really useful to, to people who are not yet at college. And then the public speaking, like I say, has just taken over everything and the consulting. So people you know, contact me through ASCOT to looking for a consultant, be it through a school district or if a family wants someone to, to speak to. I've, I've gone down, down to schools and consulted with um, you know, people who are working on a specific case with a student at the school. So I do all different kinds of things like that, but I, you know, my speaking has taken me all, all over. I was in France in 2017, and then I spoke in Mexico last year um, in Cabo San Lucas. So I, I hope to continue you know, going all over the world speaking about autism and sexuality. And speaking of all over the world, uh, you, uh, you address the United Nations? Yes. Well, there you go. Uh, the world came to you. Yes, it was, it, last year's theme for World Autism Awareness Day was a, a focus on girls and women on the spectrum. Um, they have a different theme each year, and I was very honored and happy to be able to come back to speak on a panel um, about that. And the video is on YouTube, actually. Um, if you just search Amy Gravino United Nations, it comes up. But it, it was great. You know, it's, it's such an amazing platform. When I first did it in 2011, I was so nervous. I, I couldn't believe that I was, you know, I was on a panel with, somebody from the World Health Organization and, and someone who's the daughter of the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, like, and me, why am I here? You know, it was such a strange, but, uh, but you know, that was eight, eight years ago when a lot's changed since then. And I felt, I, you know, I, I always say that I have my nervous breakdown right before or like the day before I'm going to do a presentation. 
And then the day of, like, as soon as I'm up there, I'm totally calm. And that was how I felt um, last year. You know, the anticipation is the part that just kills me. I, I hate waiting. Just let me get up there. Let me get up there. And once I'm there, the room is mine. I own it. That's it. So I was happy to, to be there again. And it was because of speaking there last year that Tara Cunningham, the CEO of Specialist Journal USA, she saw me there and she asked me to be on their board. So it, it led to a wonderful opportunity, which I'm grateful for. Oh, how cool. That's very cool. Are there any areas we have not discussed that you would like to discuss? Um, I think we've covered quite a bit, actually. We really we hit all the bases, I think, in terms of sexuality. But I will say that I think I actually think it's a good thing to be scared because it means that you care. If you didn't really care about what you were doing, your performance or your message, you wouldn't be scared. But so scaring is caring, I think. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, good. This no another one of those built-in instincts that are probably good for you. Exactly. <laughs> How can we at differentbrains.org help you to achieve your worthy missions? I mean, just I so appreciate that you wanted to interview me, and I, I really am grateful that um, you're putting my message out there, and that 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 just means a whole lot. Um, just having your support, knowing you're in my corner. Um, I <laughs> I don't know. I th I just think if you continue to encourage people to, to have conversations about sexuality, encourage people to speak up on it and not be afraid of these conversations. I think that's one of the best things you could do and let people know that just because somebody is autistic, it does not mean that they're not interested in sex. I mean, there's plenty of people who are asexual who are not interested in having sex and that's perfectly okay, but that's become the stereotype in a lot of cases for autism and sex and that's not a good thing. And so just encouraging people to look away from the stereotypes and, and really start having these important conversations with their children, with their clients, with their students, with whoever, and getting us past that barrier so that we can make sure people on the spectrum lead the, the fullest lives possible. How can our audience learn more about you? You can visit my website at www.amygravino.com. That's the best place to learn all about what I'm doing. Uh, I'm on social media as well, on Twitter, um, Facebook, Facebook.com slash Amy Gravino fan page. And uh, I'm on Instagram as well. And so you can find me on all those places. And But the website, I always try to update with all my upcoming speaking engagements and any media or press or anything that's going on. So that's a, that's a good way. And I also have a mailing list that people can sign up for. If they go to my website, there's a form they can fill out to sign up for my mailing list. So if you do that, you'll get all the, the latest updates and newsletters and information. Well, Amy Gravino, it's been such a pleasure to have you here at differentbrains.org. Thank you so much for everything you're doing and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me at Different Brains. I really appreciate it. It's been a great interview. Thank you so much. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.